Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader. In 2015, long before I started at Bustle, I landed a very small copywriting gig on this video series called The Trials of Spring. The six-part series is all about women who were on the front lines of the revolutions during the Arab Spring in Tunisia, Libya, Egypt, Bahrain, Yemen, and Syria. It's an incredible body of work. You should check it out at trialsofspring.com. And it opened my eyes to the unique challenges women face in each of these countries as activists, citizens, lawyers, prisoners, and more. Coincidentally, also around that time, I met Dima. We both moved to New York on the same day, me from Seoul, her from Syria. We both rented rooms in an apartment in Brooklyn. She took the front room. I took the back. As we shared a kitchen and a living room, I learned Dima's story about Syria, her family, her friends, her work as a human rights attorney and volunteer refugee coordinator in her home country. Dima's from a small town north of Damascus. Her father worked for the government. Her mother was a gynecologist. By any measure, her life was pretty typical except for the fact that she grew up in a country overshadowed by an unforgiving regime. And as you know, the war in Syria has only gotten worse and worse. At this point, millions of Syrians have left the country, and many are attempting to settle in the U.S., a prospect that's gotten dimmer under President Trump. Trump ran on a platform that included a hardline approach to immigration, and his notorious Muslim ban sparked protests across the country a week into his term. But more on that later. Several years ago, Dima left Syria, too. She's been through a lot since then, and she's here with us today. I'm Amanda Richards. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Dima. Thanks for being here. Hi, Amanda. How are you? I'm good. So can you tell us about the first days of the revolution? So the revolution started first in Tunisia, um, and then in Egypt and like we were very astonished by what happened because we we never dreamt that something major like this would happen in this area in this region um especially that uh, all of the the neighboring countries had like um regimes um but of course the Syrian regime was the more um the most uh, violent uh, regime and like most brutal regime which was actually well known um, even before the Arab Spring started. So the government in Syria was always authoritarian, but you're saying that the Arab Spring triggered that even more, right? Mm, so, like, even when the revolution started in, uh, uh, was in uh, Tunisia and in Egypt, like, several uh, demonstration, demonstration um, uh, took to the street in Damascus, like in supporting the uh, revolutions in uh, in Egypt and Tunisia and even Libya and, and Yemen after that. And it was kind of a test of like 
the Syrian streets and how people would react to it. And I think the regime also knew that. Uh, so it, um, the regime suppressed uh, these um, demonstrations very brutally as well. Mm-hmm. Like after that, like what, you know, like what happened in Dara uh, when um, children like age of uh, 13 and 14 years old uh, wrote on the on the walls of their uh, schools like the the people want to topple the regime and then those children were arrested and were brutally tortured and their even fingernails were pulled off and like very horrible stuff happened to them and then their parents and their um, relatives went to the streets demanding them so like the regime never took the easy way with the with the demonstrators or with the with the, its oppositions, so from the beginning they chose the um, the security solution and they um, killed and uh, forced people to disappear and uh, imprisoned uh, opposition. Like and I don't know how to describe this. Like unbelievable what's happening actually under the ground in Syria and because all of these prisons are under the ground and this like where where it was happening like even before the revolution but in a lower scale let's say but like like imagine that you are living like in this country and you know that under the ground that might be somebody who's tortured to death at the very same moment that you are having fun with your friends or family I mean that's I can't I can't imagine that it's it's brutal and it feels like something from a different period of time, like a different century, you know? This is my childhood, for example, on my, my all of my grown up life. Like so I I was born and like grown up under this regime. Like, this is the only thing that I knew actually. Do you remember the specific moment maybe when you when you knew you had to leave? So this moment happened when my my town was targeted by the regime, by the air, airplane, and I had to be to move or displaced to Damascus uh, with my family, and then, like, decided as many of the Syrian youth at that time uh, to go to Lebanon, as because it's like uh, very close to Syria and it's a neighboring country, and like we have like very similar culture, and I never thought that I will, it will be. It like I thought that it will be like for a, for a little while mm-hmm. even, mm-hmm. and that I will come back to Syria. And I took some of my stuff. And yeah, as I, as I told you, like I never thought that it that like I will never see my house again or my family's house again. But it, still, it wasn't easy when I left. Like um, I was in this cab. Like I took a cab to Lebanon because it's close. Like it's two you hours. You took a ca- You took a cab to Lebanon. Yeah, this is how you traveled. Oh my gosh. <laughs> It's two hours far. So you finally go through that. You make your way out of Lebanon. And at this point, are you thinking to yourself, I'm still going to go back to Syria? Or are you pretty much like, you know, uh, probably not? Or what are you thinking? I actually waiting for that day. Um, the problem that I can't go now because, like, I might be targeted easily. Mm-hmm. It's too scary and too risky to go. Um but I'm dreaming about the day that I will go back to Syria. As it turns out, Dima worked with refugees herself. A few years before the Syrian revolution broke, she graduated from law school. She used her degree to help people coming to Syria for asylum. Today, the idea of fleeing to Syria seems crazy. But back then, it was an option, especially for Iraqis fleeing the Iraq war. 
so back when I graduated from law school in Syria, um, so I was trained for two years to be a lawyer, uh, but I didn't find myself as a lawyer, um, like as a lawyer going to the courts and like following uh, with like cases. When Dima says find myself here, she means she couldn't see herself working in the courts. She wanted to help refugees up close and personal. At the time, Dima was working with a Norwegian NGO. But after fleeing to Lebanon, yeah, in a cab, she started working with the UNHCR, which is the UN's refugee agency. I, uh, like during my study, I found myself attached to human rights. And um, I was looking for a job in this area. And then I came across the UNHCR job uh, because like many of my, some, sorry, not many, some of my friends also uh, started to work with UNHCR. And when I read more about it, I was like convinced that this is an area that I can work in. Or I worked in the legal department. So like our... Uh, services were provided to everybody um, who is Syrian in Lebanon because everybody needed, obviously, a visa there to stay. And so we provided uh, information about how to legalize their stay because, like, some also refugees fled illegally from and entered Lebanon illegally. Lebanon has taken in a huge amount of Syrian refugees, more than a million, according to the European Commission, since it's right next door. In fact... Nearly one out of every four people living in Lebanon is a Syrian refugee. Dima was working in makeshift refugee camps. The Lebanese government doesn't allow any formal camps to be established in Lebanon. So people just put together these camps and it's very very horrible conditions. There are some details Dima didn't want to talk about on the record. But suffice it to say that a few events back home in Syria made her start to feel like she might not be able to go back. And the Lebanese government was making her jump through hoops just to stay there legally. That's when she decided to try the United States. Dima got to the U.S. in 2014, and she's been here ever since. She came here on a tourist visa, and that's an important detail. Dima isn't technically a refugee. While she was in Lebanon, she applied for a tourist visa to the United States. She was randomly selected, allowed, to visit for six months. It sounds crazy to say in light of everything she went through, but she got lucky. Since then, she's been seeking asylum, which is its own process. Unfortunately, many Syrians aren't as lucky. They have to apply for refugee status from outside the U.S., a process that can be long, difficult, and demoralizing. Here to tell us more about that is Natasha Hall a former immigration officer at the Department of Homeland Security. Currently, she's doing humanitarian work in Istanbul. Hi, Natasha. Hi, how are you doing? So the reason that we wanted to bring you on the show is because you wrote that great essay for The Washington Post. Refugees are already vigorously vetted. I know because I vetted them. And just to give people at home a little bit of background, um, you worked for the Department of Homeland Security. So can you start off by telling us a little bit about what you did? Yeah, sure. Um, So I was part of a division within USCIS, so that's Citizenship Immigration Services, uh, called the Refugee Affairs Division. So as a refugee officer, you you travel most of the time. So you go out for about a month to two months to each place, um, anywhere in Africa, Asia, um, Central South America, um, and the Middle East, of course. Um, to do these interviews with refugees. Um, And you're kind of the last interview that they go through before the decision is made 
as to whether or not that they will be resettled to the United States. Okay, so one of the things that, you know, you wrote about in your article that I think we were surprised by is that the UNHCR is the first point of contact for refugees. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about how that works? Yeah, it's not always the first point of contact, but for most refugees, it is the first point of contact. Um, So in in many cases, um, a refugee will approach UNHCR for benefits. So that goes for food stamps. It depends on the, the situation or the area, if it's a refugee camp or uh, refugees living in a in an urban environment, um, and then from there they could possibly apply for resettlement. And UNHCR also goes to the cases um, and decides which cases are sort of appropriate for resettlement as well. Um, so so that is typically the first point of contact. But in in rare cases, it could also be you know the U.S. embassy or something like that as well. The U.S. government basically doesn't consider refugees that aren't first vetted by the UN? Most refugees go through several levels before they even get to the U.S. I mean, it is what I, is one of the points I made also during, uh, in the article itself. So yeah, UNHCR is typically the first one, and then there's usually another organization, and that organization depends on the country as well. Um, and it goes through another round of vetting and interviews and documentation with them. Uh, And then sort of at the very end of the process, um, the U.S. comes in and puts their information through all of our databases. And that also includes fingerprints and um, and the interview. And that's the Department of Homeland Security. That's like the last gatekeeper. Exactly. Yeah. So at that point, when they have all that information and these people have gone through so many different layers, um, you know, what what is exactly the Department of Homeland Security's role at that point? They have everything they need. I mean, and and how vigorous is that if there's so many things that happened before it? Well, it's actually quite useful because in some places, um, not actually the places that are banned on, on the list on the executive order necessarily, but in other countries, there's not that much documentation. Refugees just don't have that much paperwork. Um, and that includes a lot of East African countries, um, some of the Asian countries as well, um, simply because they, they never really had documentation. Um, it's not because they fled and they, and they didn't have anything. So to have those several rounds of interviews is actually quite useful for determining somebody's identity. So, uh, you know, if they've gone through two or three interviews beforehand, then you can actually measure their story um, and sort of compare if there's discrepancies and things like that. And you can ask for additional documentation if there is a discrepancy or there's, there's something um, that you're curious about uh, with regards to their past. So, um, so there's actually quite a bit more that DHS does at the end. Um, the fingerprints that are taken are also taken by refugee officers. So that has to be a, a, an employee of the U.S. government. Um, that takes those um, takes those fingerprints and takes the pictures. So then that actually also goes through nine different agencies within the U.S. government. So um, so yeah, it's it's a pretty uh, <laughs> it's a pretty extensive process, and that's not even mentioning the sort of the background research and the additional research that goes into it um, at headquarters. At the beginning of the essay that I mentioned um, that you wrote for the Washington Post, you mentioned interviewing someone um, from Syria. And just as an example, I know it's obviously different for every country, but when you say all of the documentation, 
uh, what people bring. Can you can you describe um, you know what that is? What what is the documentation? Right. Well, especially for actually for refugees from Iraq or Syria um, that are very well documented because they were um, citizens of a country with uh, with you know enormous bureaucracies. <laughs> so um, so that includes that can include passports, um, national ID cards, military booklets, family booklets. This is just to name a few things. Um, depending on what religion they are, sometimes baptismal certificates they'll bring in, high school certificates. I could go on um, college certificate recommendations from people. Um, it's uh, it, they tend to be the most well documented um, people that we that we interview. Typically, people from Iran or Iraq or Syria. Our other guest on the show. Um is from Syria, and she actually did not come here as a refugee. She came here on a tourist visa and then is currently applying. Um, she's an asylum seeker. Um, can you describe a little bit about the difference between the two? I mean, if you're applying as a refugee from outside the country versus seeking asylum asylum from within? Yeah, sure. Um, it's quite a different process, although some um, people that work in the asylum office also come out with us on what we call circuit rides. So that's when we go out to uh, these countries in Africa and the Middle East and do these interviews. Um, so it's similar in terms of the, the legal basis for, uh, for asylum and refugee adjudications. Um, however, um, for asylees, they've actually gotten to the United States. They've entered um, through a point of entry, um, and then they have subsequently applied for asylum here. And before their asylum claim can be adjudicated, they, they have the right to stay here, essentially. So, um, but they essentially go through the same process. They go through interviews and, and, and every, the entire process that I just described earlier. Um, but it's just within, within the United States, um, versus what, uh, what refugee officers do, which is actually go out to the, to the country that the, the first country that the, that the refugee has fled to, um, to do those interviews. Let's talk a little bit about the executive order um, from President Trump. Uh, the the main point of your essay is that you know, okay, well, here's this here here's what the executive order bans, um, but all of these things that Trump is was trying to put in place already exist. Can you elaborate a little bit more on that? Yeah, I mean, the the first executive order was, I think, uh, very badly written. I think most lawyers would agree with me on that. Um, it was quite simplistic. It, it, it simply asked for additional vetting um, and that we needed this sort of arbitrary length of time for agencies to determine what that vetting process is uh, without actually going to those agencies to begin with to see if there needed to be that sort of hiatus in refugee resettlement before that happened. Um, and for years now, we've been refining the vetting process. Um, and it's, I, I mean, it's worked. <laughs> we haven't seen uh, terrorist attacks by, by people who have been resettled through the refugee process. Um, so I think that sort of, that was kind of just a, a knee-jerk reaction to a, a non-event, basically. Um, the new executive order is a bit more um, finely crafted, clearly, but I think the same legal issues and concerns with regards to human rights and um, and basically the need to cut the refugee resettlement population in half, um, I think those questions are st still uh, incredibly valid. Since, um, you know, these executive orders have been in the news, there's been a lot of chatter about who 
a refugee is, what they're like, their story, whether it's, you know, a stereotype or just, you know, we can't possibly hear everybody's story, right? So I, I wanted you to just tell us a little bit about some of the refugees that you worked with. I mean, what, what kinds of people are they? Yeah. Um, I mean, obviously, it's <laughs> refugees are human beings, so every, every story is different, um, especially every conflict is different. But uh, overall, I would say that, um, it, like, in terms of, of people fleeing active conflict, especially uh, like the conflict in Syria, um, a lot of these people are, are quite traumatized and just looking for a safe place to start their lives again. Dima never had to apply as a refugee, but it hasn't made her resettlement any easier. Like Natasha said, asylum seekers still go through all that paperwork and vetting. They just do it from within the United States. In that sense, refugees and asylees are kind of in the same boat. But what makes Dima unique is her own experience with refugees in a past life back when Syria wasn't collapsing. I asked her whether that experience helped her prepare for what she's facing now. Uh... It gave me, like, a general idea, but it's still, like, very hard. Even though, like, you, like I've listened to a lot of refugee stories and hardness that they went through. And I could imagine all of this, but, like, when you personally go through it, like, uh, go through it, it's still different. Like, it's deeper in feelings. And it certainly, like, gave me, like, an idea about how what I I might face and, like, how to try to deal with it. Yeah, definitely not. I mean, any visa process is, is always a mess. But also I wonder about, like, sort of, like, did you come, like, emotionally prepared? Do you feel like you were realistic about the level of stress that you'd be under and duress? Yeah, like, I think, like, stress is always more than you imagine. <laughs> Yeah, somehow I was prepared, but I think like the the stress that I came through was more than I was prepared for. <laughs> and how does it affect your view of America? Does it affect it at all? Certainly it does. Um, I truly like the American people; they are so nice. Like I like the diversity of America is something that I really admired and appreciated when I first came. But now, like. Feeling that there is people also in the U.S. that are supporters of Trump, that they share with Trump all of these views, and like they are very scared from the from those others. No matter who those others are, like if they are like different from them because of their color or because of their background or culture or whatever. So yeah, it's it's not a good thing actually. So when Trump signed that executive order which blocked immigration from seven countries, Syria included. Were you worried? Yeah, it's like you can understand how this decision could be made to like protect uh, the country because like those people who come here as refugees are definitely not a threat to the country. They themselves are threatened by many major things that happened in their country and even like in other countries that they are refugee in. They go through um, very hard or like long vetting from the, especially from the U.S. And like, it's not easy to get anybody in the U.S. Um, so those people are very well vetted from the U.S. And 
like the U.S. knows every person uh, enters the country. So it's not, I don't know, it's not a valid reason to say that those people are threatened to the country still after all of this check that is taking place. And it's really disappointing because those people like went through a lot and like to be discriminated against again and like all of this injustice that they saw in their life. It's like, yeah, it's unimaginable. I still don't know whether or not Dima will be awarded asylum. Neither does she. If she isn't, there's no telling what the future might hold. Dima and thousands like her never had it easy. President Trump's executive orders haven't even been applied yet, and even before his election, the road to resettlement was long, uncertain, and only available to some. It's not like the gates to America were wide open before Trump came along. But his stance on immigration and victory last November have broadcast to the world that this country might be losing touch with one of its greatest values, at least on the surface, providing opportunity. It isn't just red tape preventing refugees from finding a safe place. It's fear, hate, and rejection. When we think of Syrians like Dima and anyone else fleeing war and violence, being denied a place in the United States, we have to challenge ourselves not to see them as numbers, millions of people from seven countries, as Trump's executive order defines them. Instead, we should think of their stories, lost if they never get to come here and share them. I want to thank Dima for being here and sharing her story, and Natasha Hall for joining us from Istanbul. I also want to thank Anna Parsons, our producer, and Pierre Bienname, our producer and co-editor. Join us in two weeks when we'll hear from a teenager working to put trans issues front and center at his high school. I feel okay. I have a sense of self. I know who I am. And now that I know who I am, I feel much more comfortable being able to express myself. That's next time. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers. But you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. <laughs> AutoTrader. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.